As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The race is on, and while it was a slightly tepid end to a dramatic season, Max Verstappen's victory from pole position in the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix ensured that 2020 had one last sting in the tail. And it creates the usual winter question of whether Red Bull can translate a strong end to the year into a strong start to the next one. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me for a final race review of the season are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Mark, hello. You've been... Our, our emissary in the desert over the past uh, past few weeks, haven't we? How are you enjoying your your luxury lockdown hotel? It's quite a luxurious prison, yes, um, and I am enjoying the sunshine. I, I, I can't lie; um, it's nice having you uh, breakfast outside in December. But um, yeah, it's, it's a long time to be away, and um, it's when you so those the, the triple header in the Middle East. Um, it means that the feeling of Christmas has completely passed by because you you just think it's it's I don't know September or something like that, and then you look at the date and you think, "Blime, yeah, it's Christmas." We've missed out on the annual thing of going to Sao Paulo and being amazed that they seem to be putting up Christmas decorations quite early in the year because they they go mad for Christmas in the, in Sao Paulo. But that's uh, that's always what I remember there. But also, Scott Mitchell, have you been having breakfast outside in sunny Stockholm? No, because um, you've completely mischaracterized it there by calling it sunny Stockholm. As I learned, uh, I think it was on Saturday, uh, that we've, uh, yeah, it was Saturday because it, the, I, I learned that 12 days into December and we'd uh, yet to register a single hour of sunlight in, in, in Stockholm uh, so far this month. It has just been, um, si- the six hours or so of daytime have just been pure cloud cover and <laughs> like one or two degrees uh temperature so it has been uh it has been christmasy in temperature but not so much uh yeah i've so i've not really been daring to you know breakfast on the balcony or or, or any anything like that so yeah for, for one of for one of the very precious few times this year for the people who have braved going to the track and 
living in uh, in in isolation and sort of media center style prisons i do envy mark a little bit for for what he's been able to enjoy on site well i have to say having been to a good number of the races myself it is uh, nice to be able to get out and about obviously a lot of people uh, can't go that far at the current time so yeah swings and roundabouts and it's great we've had an f1 season to talk about even if it finished in slightly subdued fashion so mark let's get into it Max Verstappen, he's joked regularly this season about having that reservation on third place, but he did take pole position by 25 thousandths of a second. Then he controlled the race. So let's start off with where that pace came from to take pole and set up the win. It's uh, two things. It's the relative pace between the Red Bull and the Mercedes. The Mercedes, uh, like Lewis Hamilton, wasn't at its fittest, and the Red Bull was improved, and it had a, um, a new single pillar rear wing which was working very very well around there um you won't have seen it reflected in the speed traps because the honda tends to clip a bit earlier than the mercedes but it was getting down those straights very very quickly so there's a bit of a a misnomer because people often look at the speed trap figures and say well the car's not you know judge how fast the car is down the straight from those that's just the terminal speed the, the crucial thing is how long it takes to get from the beginning of the straight to the end of it and you can easily be the quickest getting from the beginning of the straight to the end of it and have the slowest terminal speed. That's quite feasible. Um, the, the new setup on the Red Bull was working very well aerodynamically and it was being driven very well, of course, by Max. Um, and on the other hand, the Mercedes, there was just never quite, uh, was never quite in its balance window. It was always a little bit understeery. And there was also in the race, not in qualifying, but in the race, they were also being very conservative with the uh, the, the MGUH, uh, MGUK, um, because it was a, an undefined um, concern, uh, and it, it, it may have been responsible for the um, the failure in Sergio Perez's car as well. And of course, the interesting thing is, if you look at qualifying, both Mercedes drivers did have a slightly faster theoretical ideal lap based on the three sectors. So it sort of shows that Mercedes pace is in there somewhere, but they couldn't string it all together. And that's what Verstappen seemed to do so well on that qualifying lap, isn't he? He just put together three strong sectors. Yeah, and Valtteri was saying, you know, that he just didn't get the car working on the soft tyre. It was just never properly balanced, so you didn't get the full benefit of the, the soft tyre. And when you, if, if the car's not perfectly balanced, what tends to happen when you go from a uh, a harder compound or a grippier compound is that you just in simplistic terms because the rear tires are bigger you get more extra grip on the back than you, than you get from the front um, so if your car's not perfectly balanced you will tend to pick up more understeer when you switch to the grippier tire and so you won't realize the full lap time benefit of, of that softer tire and that's what was happening in qualifying do we think that Lewis Hamilton had a bit of a COVID-19 hangover on his return? Scott, you asked him about that, I think, after qualifying, didn't you? Yeah, he was. Um, he, he did say he wasn't feeling uh, at 100%. Um, I don't think he was sort of laying the groundwork for an excuse. And he did mention after the race that he, I think he sort of said he was like basically blown out after that race. He he was, uh, he, was he, he had struggled and he's... Um, He's in pretty good shape, is Hamilton, isn't he? So physical fitness and condition never really is a problem for him. But there are a couple of accounts of him sort of being out of breath when he got out of the the, the car at times at the weekend. He said that he needed the most of Friday to get back into the groove. I think what people need to 
probably realises it's not so much the issue of missing the Sakir Grand Prix because that was Hamilton had what nobody else had, which was a week off of driving and then the sort of like relentless nature of this season. But so, so there wasn't a huge amount in terms of get, getting out of the loop, I don't think. I think it was just because Hamilton was not necessarily hit for six by uh, by having COVID, but he was definitely not asymptomatic. He was definitely struggling with something. And I thought it was quite telling that he didn't really want to go into how much he'd uh, struggled with it in terms of the specific symptoms he had because he he said that he was basically just lacking overall energy uh, on Saturday. I think he felt a bit better on Sunday. Um, I think he'd slept a bit better Saturday evening than he had for, for the last few nights. But it did. It got the impression that he'd basically spent sort of a week or so of that sort of 10-day period of isolation pretty spent and not being able to do very much. I don't think he trained until was it the Tuesday before the race. So he would have probably spent a good seven days without much energy. Uh, and that's all it takes. You only need to be a tiny bit off your game. So while when, when he says that he was when he says that he was tired and it had an impact on, on, on his race. I don't think he's saying he would have won without it. I think he's just saying he can feel it afterwards because I do think that adrenaline and focus and stuff like that kind of takes you through it in the moment itself. There's all sorts of stories of the crazy injuries that people are able to race through, especially in the nutty world of, of MotoGP. And so Lewis didn't have anything like that, but I just think it was enough to maybe blunt the edge a tiny, tiny bit when it mattered. Yeah, that's certainly uh, very possible, and obviously, plenty of people struggle with the with the COVID symptoms long after they've tested negative or the hangover, as we should as we should say. But Mark, the race, Max Verstappen was very first all the way through. Valtteri Bottas was very second all the way through. Lewis Hamilton was very third all the way through. Each of them spent all fifty five laps in those positions. They all had the same strategy. All stopped on lap ten under the virtual safety car, which then became a safety car. Is there any meat you can put on that bone to say that was a particularly interesting race? Any unseen subtleties or was it exactly <laughs> what it looked like? Um, yeah, there is a bit of meat I can put on the bones, but it, um, it, 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 it's, prob- it's probably worth um, reading the, the, the race analysis in a, in a few hours' time to get properly into it. But um, yeah, it, it, even even had it not been for that early safety car, which put everybody on onto uh, the same strategy, essentially. Um, so those who'd started on mediums and those who started on softs all came in and, at the same time. So that, that variation in strategy didn't get to play out because they all came in on the, the, the lap 10 safety car. So that was one thing. That was one reason why it happened that way. <clears throat> that was 14 of the remaining 19 cars did that. So there wasn't any strategic variation anyway, but not that there was going to be much because it was always going to be a one-stop race. Um, and it, that, that track just locks just locks the, the cars into position. It always does. It always has. Um, there's thermal degradation, so you can't race flat out. You have to race to the pace that the tyres are going to last because a, a second stop is too costly in time. Um, and as soon as you try and race, you knock hell out of the tyres, and that's that's just... You know, it's counterproductive if you're trying to go wheel to wheel. The only passing there was was sort of ships passing in the night, cars on different strategies further down the field, and they passed and repassed the Ferraris and things like that. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it it's not configured to be to, to to have a great race. That 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 circuit there's just too many. It wasn't planned that way, I'm sure, but it, it, the the way it's it's worked out, the unforeseen. Um, 
the unforeseen way all the factors conspired. I think we've proved it time and time again. We've been racing here since 2009. It just doesn't work very well in, in, in terms of racing. I think it brings the worst out of this generation of car as well, just sort of with the, that, that, especially that final, the final sector. Um, a little bit too, uh, a little bit too boring, 90 degree right, 90 degree left, left, right, right. It's just in racing, a racing situation, the cars just move around a little bit too much as soon as you try and push when, when, when you're in the, the, the wake of the car in front. So, um, yeah, as, as Mark says, this is just a, it's, I don't think it's a particularly well-designed track for racing in 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 practice, uh, and I think it brings out the worst of this this kind of F1 car as well. This is really the the worst of of both worlds, and adds up to a not particularly good set of circumstances for a motor race. Yeah, there's no lack of evidence to support that from over the years. F1's been racing there. So Scott, let's look at the bigger picture. Red Bulls finished the season strongly. That's been, it's been a recurring theme that they finish strongly, and everyone says, "Well, are they going to have a good winter?" and then be on par with Mercedes next year and then they're not. So are there any reasons why this could be indicative of a closer fight at the start of next season? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I think two two key reasons or two key things I think are used sort of to support that claim. The first is that when, while Red Bull has made season-long progress in the past, it's never come close to beating Mercedes in Abu Dhabi, let alone actually pulling it off. So I think think you need to recognize this step as a, a sort of magnitude of step better than it's done in, in the past did a piece on the after Verstappen's poll on uh, on the web on, on the website and there's a couple of graphs in there one of which charts the Mercedes Abu Dhabi uh, qualifying advantage year every year in the v6 era and um the step change for for, for this year is significant and and the other the other factor is that while in addition to Red Bull making this big progress over the course of the season, they say that around 60% of the car is going to be carried over to, to next year because while we have this aero change at the rear of the floor uh, to, to, to cut the downforce and aerodynamic development is still free, sort of core mechanical components being carried over, this has been the case, we've known this for months now as part of the cost-saving cost initiatives around the coronavirus pandemic, uh, which means unless Red Bull really have missed a trick, especially around the floor, there's there's reason to be confident they can actually continue this into to next year. So they're sort of going into the winter, arguably in a stronger position than they have in recent years, and there's less disturbing factors for them to trip up. So in theory, Melbourne's going to be great, which means in practice we're going to turn up and Lewis and Valtteri will be on the front row by half a second but ranged against that of course is the fact that Mercedes switched their focus onto next year pretty early I think Spa was the last upgrade they had for the car and obviously they wanted to get the 21 work done so that the decks are as clear as possible for the 2022 the big project uh, they've got to work on next year obviously aero testing and CFD work can start again on January the 1st so yeah, but don't forget that don't forget that Ribble haven't exactly uh, ignored the 2021 stuff because they're one of the teams that have been turning up with actual uh, trackside uh, evaluations of, of that Mercedes haven't done that they've committed to it purely from a from a at base perspective, but and and I do think I do really worry about Mercedes having a proper run up to this rule change. But just 
I do think it's also worth pointing out that Red Bull haven't, it's not that they've shunned it completely. I know that's not what, what you were getting at, but just to stress the, the, the point, they have at least been doing their own, their own evaluations. They've also got the fact that they've got a couple of tokens they can use to develop some of the otherwise locked elements of the car. And this car does have a few things engineered into the concept that they need to undo. They change quite a bit for the start of the year. So there is potentially more that can be unlocked in the Red Bull. That's a positive way of looking at it. Where would you put your money on, Mark, in terms of where Red Bull will be relative to Mercedes next Second. year? Second. Um, I think they'll be uh, hopefully closer than the start of this season um, at um, and I think, yeah, there are pros and cons of the two approaches. The one of switching the car off and developing it back at base for next year very early. Uh, and then the, the other one of, of Red Bull using the opportunity of, of a very unusual opportunity of um, having the same, essentially the same monocoque um, going from one year to the next um, by regulation and developing it so that that development is relevant. Um, but I still feel that... Uh, it's Mercedes is too multifaceted, too absolutely clinical in every single department. I do feel it's the most uh, complete uh, racing team that, that the Formula One has ever seen. And Red Bull has moments of great inspiration and ideas, um, but they um, they don't have the 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 core stability of Mercedes, the the fact that they have to keep, over the years, keep swapping around from one engine supplier to another, that's a massive undertaking in terms of the impact that that has on a, on the development of a, a philosophy. And I just think that, we'll, we, I'm sure we'll see moments of brilliance from, from Red Bull, just like we've seen here this weekend. And hopefully we'll see them more regularly than we have uh, this year, when we, we get into next year. But no, my money would always be on Mercedes. But great, at least, to see Max Verstappen get another victory. That's only his 10th win now, so second win for the season. So that, that'll kind of keep him a little bit a little bit excited, I guess. And it's it's good for the variety of the season. So that's, that's I guess, something. But yeah, I'm not holding my breath for the, the Hamilton versus Verstappen title fight next year, even though everyone would love to see two teams equally matched up at the front. So let's look a little bit down the order, Mark, because McLaren went into this race weekend as the underdogs in that battle for third in the Constructors' Championship. But they came out on top. Things went very badly for Racing Point. So how did McLaren turn that 10-point disadvantage into their best Constructors' Championship position since 2012? Um, I would say the number one thing was the abysmal weekend suffered by Racing Point. So we had prayers not only starting from the, the back of the grid. He already had his work cut out for him but, um, it, because of the engine change. Um, but then, of course, he retired very early in the race, and so that left the whole thing hanging on the shoulders of uh, Lance Stroll. Um, and at no point in the weekend did Stroll look like he'd had his had his, uh, his, his A game. Um, there was a, I think, Sergio in Q1, Sergio appeared just for formality's sake, knowing that he was going to be starting at the back. And his Q1 lap was better than anything that, Lance subsequently did in Q2 or Q3. So um, he clearly wasn't getting the best out of the car this weekend, and that translated into the race where he was a fairly lackluster 10th and passed on the last lap by Esteban Ocon. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened with Perez because he made short work of the, the Class C cars at the back, as I like to call them, and was starting to think about trying to get ahead of the Ferraris when uh, when he suffered that failure 
And he'd have been running long on hards, so it would have been the Ricardo strategy. Different track position situation, but could well have got some points. We should say that McLaren did perform well. This is their best qualifying performance since Monza, with having two cars in the top six again. So a much stronger qualifying performance than fifth for Norris in the race, sixth for Lando Norris. It was a, it was a strong weekend when they needed it, wasn't it? And that put all the pressure on to Racing Point, and Stroll certainly didn't respond to that. Yeah, absolutely. And the, um, the, the McLaren has been improving of late, I think, Flat that period of Mugello round up to probably Istanbul. They were um, caught trying to, in 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 the middle of trying to develop something for next year. The, the the front of the car, which needed to be homologated, so they had to be running it and they had to get it on the car and understand it. And I think that took away from the focus um, of the the battle with Renault and and Racing Point, who were. On who themselves were at that moment on a very productive development path. So, yeah, they faded a little bit, but I think they've come out the other side of that. We're start, we, we were starting to see by the end of the season the sort of form that McLaren had at the start. And, uh, yeah, it, 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 came, it came right just um, it, with perfect timing, really. And they both, yeah, both um, Lando and Sainz drove great, strong races as ever. Um, a really, really solid driver lineup that one, and um, yeah, so they they just delivered exactly what their car was capable of. That car was capable at the very best uh, today of uh, finishing fifth and sixth, and that's exactly where they finished. Yeah, this is the thing that I think McLaren have got over Racing Point, and they've had it sort of from the very start of the season. I, I'm I'm pretty sure all three of us at some point have probably written something to that effect, haven't we? That this is going to be McLaren's sort of ace up the sleeve in, in, in that fight, even if it lacks the ultimate performance peak or potential of the, the, the racing point, the pink Mercedes. I just always sort of felt that McLaren were going to do it because even if they were, you know, if, if, if everyone finished in ultimate performance order every weekend and McLaren in theory should have both cars seventh and eighth with the two racing points fifth and sixth. I just never really had any faith that both racing points would be there week in, week out. And this weekend kind of proved why, because the burden of responsibility fell on Stroll's shoulders for the probably for the first time really all year. Well, apart from when Perez was absent at Silverstone. And and Lance just he just wasn't up to it, was he? And I know that during the race, Racing Point were trying to sort of insist that it was nasty old signs and his slow entry into the pit lane and that was that changed the race because it, it cost Lance track position but they it, it, all, all he did was get stuck during, during the Grand Prix and then he lost then he lost ground and I just thought it was I just thought it was quite limp and whereas with McLaren so as much as you can say that Racing Point lost third I'd, I think it's split exact I think it's split perfectly perfectly down the middle 50-50 between Racing Point blowing it and and McLaren winning it. Just to put into context that thing with Sainz being investigated for backing him up in the pit lane, there's always the list of total pit lane times that you can have a look at at the end of the race. Now, had Stroll done the quickest pit stop or the shortest pit lane time of anyone of the whole race, he'd have only been seven tenths faster than his total pit lane time was on that stop. So that puts into context how how much time was actually lost. So I know it was a sensitive moment under the BSC, but yeah... It, he said he struggled with the tyre temperatures as soon as he was in traffic, but while Sainz was able to clear the Ferraris, he just got stuck, got passed by Gasly, and then got passed by Ocon on, on the last lap. So yeah, 
difficult season for Racing Point. They had that performance. They had the 15-point deduction. That, made, that, in fact, made a decisive difference. In the end, that was for the illegally designed rear brake ducts and just not enough two-car points finishes. So they've had some bad luck. Lance Stroll's had some bad luck at times this season as well. But overall, yeah, the driver lineup wasn't quite as strong as it needed to be. And Perez wasn't really the problem there. And the execution wasn't wasn't always there. But third place for McLaren, that, that's important for them, isn't it, Mark? A, a, a signpost in their hoped-for return to the front. So this this is very positive that they've been able to get back to the level they were in 2012, championship position-wise. They were slightly more competitive pace-wise that year, of course. Yeah, it gives them credibility when they're um, going out looking for more backing. It, they, can, they can show a progression, can't they? Um, and this, you know, this still in in terms of lap time, they're still well over a second away from where they need to be if they're going to be um, competing with Mercedes directly. But it it is going in the right direction, and um, third place in a constructors' championship is not to be sniffed at. Yeah, exactly. A second on average, we should say, is obviously a second in Abu Dhabi in qualifying would have uh, would have put London Norris comfortably on the, on pole position. But that was a, an outlier in terms of the gap. So Scott. If we just turn away from the race but stay on McLaren, McLaren announced this significant stake had been sold in the racing side of McLaren Group. That was announced on the morning of the race. So can you explain who was brought into it and why? Uh, yeah, it's um, it's a consortium of uh, of American in- investors uh, and it's basically it's a £185 million uh, investment that I think is uh, it's initially going to manifest itself as a 15.15% uh, stake in McLaren Racing, the racing division, which obviously... F1 is a part of, but also the IndyCar activities as well. Um, but that will rise uh, to a maximum of 33%, uh, so a third of the team, by the end of 2022, uh, which is obviously a minority stake, but a, sub- a substantial uh, stake uh, in, in, in the team. Um, and the so the people behind it, the, the, the group is, is MSP Sports Capital is, is, is the name, and there's sort of a, it's like anything with um, any consortium that gets involved, I guess, at, at this level. There's a mix of sort of, obviously, there are wealthy individuals. Some of them have got uh, other sports backgrounds, marketing backgrounds. There's a little bit of motorsport history in there because one of the guys used to own a NASCAR team. In fact, that's how they know McLaren racing CEO, Zach Brown. Um, and basically, what this means is that the F1 team. Uh, and I will, I'll just say F1 team rather than McLaren Racing just because it's easier <laughs> the F1 team is now basically going to operate a little bit more independently from the wider McLaren group uh, and it's also going to just have extra extra capital so it's going to have extra money to, to, to crack on with and the significance of that isn't that this was the difference between McLaren going out of business in a few months time or, or whatever but it's the difference basically between McLaren treading water in Formula 1 and actually making good on its uh, ambition to fight for world titles again. It's, there's a lot of stuff going on in the background with McLaren, um, with big infrastructure projects like the new wind tunnel and the new simulator that were paused during COVID, and the plan was to get them back underway again, but it's investment like this that actually makes that possible. So these things can now tick over over the next couple of years. It means that senior personnel and top-line drivers you know, there's there's capital expenditure to to actually sort of make that happen rather than put put people off. The motivation remains high because there isn't any cash flow problem. All of these things that can, I guess, combine and sort of trap a team in the sort of vicious circle that Williams has had, where the money decreases, so the resource 
if all the the global resource decreases, performance decreases, decreases, results get worse, prize money gets less, and then you it just goes and goes and goes like that. And basically, McLaren now see this as sort of the it would have been really difficult for them to continue their progress that we've seen over the last two years if they didn't get fresh investment. The wider group's been caught up in all sorts of financial uh, strife, especially this year with the with the pandemic. Uh, but the the sort of core F1 team has sort of been a really strong part of that uh, w- w- within the group. It just needed to s- to be almost broken off a little bit and then succeed in its own right. This sort of helps it, it do that. So the group can continue to sort itself out financially without McLaren F1 worrying about getting sort of brought down with the ship, I suppose. Yeah, it's a significant step. They needed to get some investment in and does mean the future looks a lot brighter now for McLaren, doesn't it? Of course, they've got Mercedes engines next year. They've got Daniel Ricciardo coming in, a bit of financial stability, infrastructure projects, new wind tunnel, investment in simulator, that kind of thing. So there's there's lots of uh, lots of positives there. So we'll see how they get on. Speaking of Daniel Ricciardo, in fact, Mark, he was probably the most interesting mover of the race, wasn't he? Because he started 11th, he sat there in the first stint, but he managed to finish 7th without, I think, over- actually overtaking anyone. How did he manage to achieve that? Um by not qualifying for Q3 and then by doing his normal thing of combining pace with uh, great tyre usage. So he was able to start on the hard tyre, which actually doing a hard medium stint at that part of the the grid was better than the medium hard uh, way of doing it, which uh, what his teammate did. So he ran uh, after after everyone came in uh, at the safety car, he stayed out. That put him in fifth place, just behind only the two Mercs and the two Red Bulls. <clears throat> Quite a way behind, but in fifth place. And he ran a really good pace there for ages. I mean, I think he came in on lap yeah, 39 out of 57. Um, and was setting a pace faster than the cars he would have dropped into had he pitted. And, and he just gradually worked his virtual way up, if you know what I mean, the, the order just with his consistent pace. So you, when you look at where he's going to drop into at any given lap, if he pitted at that moment, he just kept coming up that order. Um, and, yeah, he, he rejoined in um, uh, seventh place and on a set of mediums when everybody else was now on the hards. And it looked for a time as though he might be able to put some pressure on the two McLarens, but then the mediums gave up quite early, actually. Um, but it was a... Uh, it was good, and he kept enough life left in the tyre to uh, set the race's fastest lap on. So his last ever lap in the Renault was the fastest lap of the race. I should actually correct myself there, because he did pass Ocon in the first stint, of course, but then he gained the next three places on the on the strategy. But yeah, another fine drive. Very, very, very well measured, I think, because he, he came out of the pits just ahead of Gasly, and I think he pretty much got every last iota that he could have done out of that starting set of hard. So just a really... Really well-measured drive from him, as as you'd expect. Now, Scott, Alpha Tari, Pierre Gasly had a quite decent run to eighth place, but teammate Daniel Kvyat didn't get the result he wanted. He was down in 11th, but he did produce a great cameo on Saturday, didn't he? Uh, he he did. Um, I think the sort of heroics at, at that team, which sort of when it's got things right this year, has got things right in a very big way, have been left almost exclusively to to Gasly, who, as we as we know and have talked about quite a lot on this podcast, has been exceptional this year. But last few races, Kvyat sort of pieced a few decent little bits together and he was he put in a really good lap in in, in qualifying 
to 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 I think he started started seventh. Um and he was massively enthusiastic about it. Uh well you're probably better placed to comment than I because I remember you wrote something for the for the for the website Ed on on sort of how good Kvyat's lap was or where it ranked because did he call it the best of his career or one of the best of his career? Yeah, well, he sort of said probably probably the best and then he felt it probably was because he named some of the other ones and he didn't think they were better. So he did say he doesn't lie awake at night ranking his, his qualifying laps. I did try and ask him, but uh, yeah, he uh, he unhelpfully hadn't pre-prepared a list. But it was certainly very, very strong. I had a good look at it. It was just one of those laps where everything was kind of on the money. And then the thing that was really impressive was the penultimate corner turn 20, the right-hander. He could carry great speed into there. That's always a good sign that the tyres are still in pretty good shape. The rear tyres overheating is the big problem in the last sector in Abu Dhabi. It's a very twisty sector, so that can make a huge difference. So he got the tyres right, drove a very good lap, and yeah, just just nailed a, nailed a very, very decent qualifying performance, which he was extremely happy with. But the race didn't go so well because the front's unexpectedly went away from him in the first stint so we had some understeer lost a few places lost some time in the pit stop because he was double stacked behind Gasly having been passed by Gasly and then he shook out in uh, in 11th place so uh, so no points for him I think that's what the most impressive thing about his performance was for, for me is that he managed to turn this excellent qualifying performance and as we've discussed track position is king in Abu Dhabi and uh, Kvyat managed to turn that into a very Kvyat 11th place finish which I think is sort of the most impressive element of <laughs> that entire performance to be honest because going backwards four places in in Abu Dhabi takes some takes some doing yeah that's his 10th 11th place in in Formula One but quickly on Kvyat Mark there's every chance this is his last Grand Prix I think he's had 110 of them in a few stints are you sorry to see him go do you think he deserved another crack or has he had his chance and shown to be very good on his day but not often enough on his day yeah the the, the latter i think he's um, a, a pretty good driver his best stuff's very good um he operates on a bit of a narrow band of of uh, car traits um he's, he's he's a bit thrown off his game if the if the car doesn't have the the rear stability he needs um he's a he's a much tougher character than he was in his first time around in formula one which is good and he, which you need to be and yeah he's performing to a high consistently higher level than he did first time around but um yeah i think gasly's performance this year is, is sort of confirmed where kvyat's at and he has he certainly he, he justifies a place on the f1 grid but he doesn't demand a place on it let's say let's put it like that yeah it's a good way to put it and although kvyat had a decent end to the season he's still only out qualified gasly four times this year and obviously Gazzy's been ahead more often in the races. So, yeah, he's, he's had a fair crack. And it's a bit of a shame. He never quite showed the improvement that that might have been expected from that very promising first season with Toro Rosso in 2014 when he did very well. But, yeah, he's had a, had a decent career. And I'm sure if someone calls on him again, they'll, they'll know they'll get a driver who can do a decent job. Now, Mark, let's also talk about Ferrari. A poor finish to the season for them. They seem to be back at their, their mid-season form with... Uh, uh, with Vettel and Leclerc both finishing behind Kimi Raikkonen, who was who was twelfth, so this this wasn't really a well executed race for Ferrari. And it all seemed to come completely unravelled when uh, Leclerc got a bit caught out at turn eight on the first lap by the the kind of concertina and ended up having to break a bit. Had a bit of a moment and ran wide, and Vettel got ahead of him, and just that that was kind of it for Ferrari. That combined with not stopping under the VSC and running long and just yeah. 
drop down the yeah. order. The Ferrari is very circuit layout sensitive, uh, much more so than the like say the Renault, or the McLarens, and that 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 sort of part of the grid. It's if it if it gets um, a circuit that doesn't punish its deficiencies too hard, and which uh, allows Leclerc's acrobatics to um, have an impact on the lap time, it, it, it can be right up there, uh, you know, the head of that that little group. But um, Abu Dhabi wasn't such a place, and it was not treating its tyres very well. It was um, wearing through the fronts, overheating them, and it just, yeah. They, Vettel couldn't really... He, he chose to start on the hard, so there was no point in him coming in. But Ferrari also left Leclerc out there on his mediums, and that was purely just a gamble because he was stuck in traffic where he was, and they reasoned he would still be stuck in traffic if everybody came in at the same time. So they just tried something different, but it didn't work. And his tyres went, and um, he was beaten by Kimi Raikkonen's Alpha. They, they, they both were, in fact. Um, so, yes, Alpha beat Ferrari. <laughs> which happened a few times earlier this season. Yeah, that, that staying out under the safety car on the mediums didn't work. In fact, it hurt Giovinazzi as well. It meant he dropped behind uh, George Russell and the Williams on a day, on a, a weekend when the Alpha was comfortably the best of those Class C cars. But Giovinazzi qualified very well, so uh, a little bit unlucky for him in that one, although Raikkonen got him around the outside at, at the first corner at the start. Mentioning Williams, Scott, George Russell found out pretty much at the last minute that he wasn't staying in the Mercedes, so he was back in the Williams. In fact, he was conducting uh, press duties for Mercedes as late as Thursday. So it was all still up in the air. As I said, he finished ahead of Giovinazzi, which was basically thanks to Giovinazzi staying out under the VSC and then Russell would get ahead of him, passed him while Giovinazzi was struggling on the mediums. Then Giovinazzi had to stop after that. But probably a little bit of a shame that Russell was back to being lapped by Mercedes rather than doing the lapping in one, isn't it? Yeah, I guess uh, reality bites quite quickly. Um, F1 gives with one hand and takes with the other, doesn't it? George found that out the hard way <laughs> just a week ago with uh, how his Sakir race un- unraveled. Um, I th- yeah, I-, I have sympathy with him, obviously, especially with how close up to the event he was still sort of, I wouldn't say the favourite, obviously, to-, to-, to race, but he was obviously preparing as if he was driving again. So that could have knocked him a little bit. He could have gone in and underperformed or just sort of like head not really been been there heart not really been in it didn't see any signs of that at all I think he talked a little bit about needing to readjust um but you'd expect that for a driver who understands that the you know the 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 nuances the fine margins make such a difference um and he certainly didn't let any sort of rust uh develop in the sort of weeks absence he'd had from from Williams because qualifying uh run in terms of uh, in Williams terms is still very much alive isn't it and he I thought he drove really well he was um I think he was frustrating Ferrari a little bit at, at times and yeah that that car will always regress to where it's meant to be won't it if, if he gets ahead of anyone but it was just another another case of more unheralded underdog heroics um and also some really like unimaginative jokes on social media about how Sakir's gone to Russell's head because now he's qualifying at the back again. Obviously trying to bait people where with the old uh, it's it's the car, not the driver uh, debate. Qualifying was a bit tricky for Williams because they really struggled with, uh, with keeping the tyre temperatures under control. Like Renault, actually, they'd gone really well in free practice three in warmer conditions earlier in the day, then really struggled in qualifying. 
So Russell, even so, was still 16th. Latifi struggled. He had a, a spin as he was opening his uh, his lap because there was he was basically sat there not moving in the queue and then had no no tire temperature and just pressed the throttle and round it went. So uh, yeah, tough weekend for for Williams, but I'm sure George Russell will come again in a Mercedes one day. But it doesn't look like it's going to be uh, be next year because Bottas is firmly. Uh, signed but we should also say Mark another farewell is that for Kevin Magnussen inevitably the Haas drivers were down the back Magnussen was 18th the car's still the same as it was in pre-season testing he reckons it's pretty unlikely he'll ever be back in F1 his future's now with Chip Ganassi Racing in the IMSA Sports Car Championship so will he be missed? I'd be missed on a personal level he's a, he's a great guy um, and he's such a, a fighting sort of character he, you know he gets his elbows out he's quite aggressive he's not all that popular with some of the other drivers but um off track he's just yeah he's he's a delightful character um and uh, yeah he fit in really he fitted in really well in, in that team uh had a typical sort of K-Mag race actually locked up at the first corner but somehow got it in passed a couple of cars in the process of doing so and then used that as a platform to make further progress just really you know knows where to place the car in in the, in the pack and in the middle of a you know a dice um, but then it, it, it just it just sank back down to its natural level and then by the end there was only his teammate Pietro Fittipaldi behind him so he he came in and had a a new set of tyres fitted with six laps to go just so that his final six laps could be, you know, he could enjoy them. Yeah, so he's, he's a driver who um, I, I, have, I have a lot of sympathy for because uh, I, I think it is a little bit misleading when people sort of oversimplify his career and say, oh, well, he was on the podium in his first race and this just isn't befitting of that calibre of driver. You know, he is, he has to bear a, a, a chunk of the responsibility for his career going the way it did in terms of the teams that were interested in, in, in him. I think sometimes his reputation sort of preceded him a little bit, but he did work on that. And at Haas, he did a great job of maturing uh, inside the car and outside of it. And I, I spoke to, uh, I spoke to, to, to Kevin, I spoke to uh, team boss Gunter Steiner, and I spoke to Ayo uh, Komatsu uh, a couple of weeks ago about Magnussen's development. And it's really interesting actually, because Komatsu's, uh, adamant that K-Mag had a bit of a sort of unseen breakthrough over the last 18 months. It's just the car's basically too rubbish to actually show. He thinks that there has there was a genuine step change in how Magnussen drives the tyre and, and, and understands the tyre and manages it. And they're really gutted because they'd have obviously loved to have seen what that would do if they had, say, the 2018 car again, the car that they had back then. Um and you just imagine, Mark was just talking there about how he is at the start and where he places the car. You, you imagine Magnussen as sort of, we generally know him, super feisty on the first lap with a little bit more deft tyre management than maybe we've seen in the past in a proper, in one of those midfield cars. That's a that's quite a different proposition. And the 2018 version of Magnussen, when he last had a proper car, was very effective and finished in the top 10 in the championship that year. So... I'm a bit gutted, actually, we didn't get to see that. I'd have loved to have seen how rounded a driver he has become. I, I do think he is lacking something to be at the absolute top level. But I think, to going back to sort of how Mark characterised Kvyat, I think Magnussen is the sort of guy who justifies a place, maybe doesn't demand one, but in a more positive way than, than, than Kvyat. I, I, I would have liked to have seen Kevin continue for, an, for another year and 
and have a chance somewhere else. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if he could have carried on. He's at times been a bit of a frustrating driver, but at his best, he can be very, very good. And there's every chance that if Hassel had a free hand on drivers and not had to take into account some more commercial considerations, that, that he'd have he'd have stayed on. But the thing that I'm quite pleased about and I admire in him is he he said after the race that he do, one of the reasons he doesn't think he's going to come back into F1 is because he wants to race and win. And if he was to sneak back into F1, it would be with a, a less good team and then it spend a few years with a not so good team and hope you get into a better one, etc. So I like that racing spirit. So he's going off to sports car racing in America. Obviously, Chip Ganassi racing a very, very good team. They're coming back into the into running Daytona prototypes in IMSA. So it'd be interesting to see how he gets on uh, how he gets on there. But I'm sure he'll he'll excel and maybe he could even sidestep into IndyCar in the future. Did you see the um, parting gift he got given by by Haas? It was a steering wheel, was it not? It was. Uh, do you know the backstory to it? The steering wheel's used to adjust <laughs> the front tyres to allow you to, to um, turn around corners and that kind of thing. Does it it's also have? Does it also have the switch that allows you to, to to turn off the big adjuster? Yeah, you can control. That's my favourite instruction. Reset the big adjuster. I've heard that so many times from watching on boards. <laughs> no, so well, qualifying. What I was getting at was uh, apparently, uh, I think it was a week ago, Magnussen went to Steiner and sort of was sort of sounding out the possibility of a leaving gift and he wanted a steering wheel. He asked for a steering wheel and Steiner told him point blank, no. <laughs> Just said, no, that can't be facilitated. Uh, and then um, and then, <laughs> and then, Kevin saw that uh, Roman Grosjean, who obviously this should have been his final Grand Prix this weekend, uh, but he couldn't race and was replaced by Pietro Fittipaldi again after the burns he suffered in that crash in Bahrain. Roman's parting gift from Haas was a steering wheel. <laughs> so... And Kevin didn't think, oh, the, the damn it, they've, they've they've had me over here. He he was a bit a bit put out because he was kind of like, oh, that's what I wanted, and they've been able to get one for Roman. So uh, <laughs> I think I think Steiner had a, a bit of fun actually uh, te- teasing him. But it was the end of a it was the end of a few eras this weekend, wasn't it? Obviously, Vettel at Ferrari, signs at McLaren, uh, Renault powered uh, McLaren as well. A few. Some of those partnerships sort of went a bit more successfully than others and signed off in better style than others. But it's kind of why it was a shame that the race was a bit rubbish, really, because there was quite a lot going on this weekend and it just kind of got lost in the meh of it all. <laughs> yeah, the race was uh, was very straightforward. And it was uh, end of an era. But that thing about the fact that Magnussen and Grosjean are so so kind of fondly regarded by by the Haas team says a lot doesn't it sometimes you see drivers moving on and teams can't wait to see the back of them because they think they're a pain in the neck and while occasionally teams may have had uh, <laughs> as people who watch Netflix may have seen occasionally Haas have had the odd problem with their drivers they they do respect what Grosjean and Magnussen have brought to them likewise you can look at someone like Vettel with Ferrari he's very popular with the team he's had a horrible farewell season with Ferrari but they're still sad to see him go and it's the same up and down the pit lane, really. Carlos Sainz as well, moving on from from McLaren, Daniel Ricciardo at, at Renault. So it's quite a nice spirit in in that regard. But as you say, yeah, very very much the uh, the the end of an era. I guess the the last thing we should uh, we should talk about briefly is to come back to the front. We asked whether Max Verstappen was going to be in a Red Bull capable of fighting Lewis Hamilton for victory. How about poor old Valtteri Bottas? He's ended the season, didn't manage to get to get a win to sign off. He had the George Russell experience in in Sakir. What do you think, Scott? Is uh, is Bottas seventeen point three or whatever he'll be next year going to going to come on strong? 
I think the George Russell, the George Russell experience is a great name for a band. Valtteri had front row seats, didn't he, last weekend? <laughs> um, I, it's been really tough. I think, uh, I think, I think, I think Bottas sort of needed the season to end. Uh, I think going in, having beaten Hamilton, regardless of the the COVID factor, I think just gives him a nice little push into the season, into the off season rather. And yeah, it's, we could have Valtteri Bottas. 4.0, 5.0, 10.0, whatever next season. And all of that stuff doesn't make a difference. What matters is that Bottas comes back refreshed because he's taken a pound in this year. Um, but he does seem to be going away a little bit happier in himself than let's say we saw sort of a week or week ago and actually in the last few races when he's had a miserable time of it. So that's good to see because while this is elite sport and I guess we don't really have sympathy for any of them that underperform from a, from a competitive point of view, from a personal, humane point of view, it's not easy to see someone go through the ringer like VB does <laughs> almost week in, week out. So, yeah, that's quite nice to see that he's ended on a bit of a higher note. Yeah, he's a robust sort of character, so I'm sure he'll he'll bounce back and, and go again and maybe make it make an interesting one of it, uh, of it next year. You're not putting your money on Red Bull, Mark. Are you putting your money on Valtteri Bottas? Um, well, put him on, put money on him to um, finish, you know, well up there. You'll, you'll get... You, you get some money back for a top three, don't you? So I, I, I don't think I don't think I'd lose money. <laughs> You're going to put it on it bottom each, each way. way. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't lose money. Um, He's Toto Wolff each way back as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, we can expect a bit more of the same next year. But if it's anything like this season's been, it's going to be a fantastic season in in 2021. Despite the fact it feels a little bit like 2020 part two. Lots of changes to the cars. Well, not lots of changes, but changes that have enough to create a little bit of interest. So so let's let's see who gets destabilised and who makes the most of those changes. But thanks very much to Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. And thanks also to all those who've listened through this strange year. It's been a great first season for the race. We've really appreciated you all joining us on these race reviews. Rest assured, we're going to keep going over the winter, not with race reviews, obviously, but you can't shut us up that easily. And there'll be plenty to listen to from us over the next couple of months on the Race F1 podcast before pre-season testing gets going. Of course, loads to read on the race.com and don't forget the hyphen, including Mark Hughes's race analysis, my driver ratings and whatever it is Scott Mitchell's working on. And don't forget to check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories. And of course, V10s were quite a popular topic with Fernando Alonso having his demo runs in the Renault R25, the 2005 championship car. Also, do have a look at our YouTube channel. Just search for the race. Rest assured, that will keep going strong during the off-season as well. So thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with another episode of the Race F1 podcast later this week. (laughs) 